going everybody this is chris welcome to episode 210 of x lapsed where we stand on the precipice of the hellfire gala here this is the eve of the gala and uh, episode 210 so that puts us a hundred episodes after we stood on the precipice of x of swords i haven't the foggiest idea how this worked out this way but uh yeah the first part of x of tens and uh, the first part of the hellfire gala will be Exactly 100 episodes apart I would like to say that I planned that (laughs) I would like to say that I have Such a really good forethought Perhaps a little bit of ESP But uh, no, no, this is all happenstance It just just so happens that it turned out this way So, pretty cool stuff Uh, That said, we have a pretty cool issue of X-Men today It's the penultimate issue of Volume 5 of X-Men And let's get into it This is X-Men Volume 5, number 20 had a July 2021 cover date. The story is called Lost Love. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Francesco Mobili. Colors Sunny Go, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller. Edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price four bucks. Went on sale May 26th of 2021. And uh, this one, if I'm remembering right, this issue got pushed back a little bit for reasons that, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe you guys do, but. Uh, I remember even when we looked at this issue in the uh, the solicitations, it said art to be determined. <laughs> we didn't even know who the artist was going to be on this, which really made me feel like this was going to be kind of an afterthought sort of issue. And we're about to find out that uh, no, no, this is a vital issue, and this is a very good issue. So let's hop in. Now we open, and we're in flashback land. We're at the Oracle. Now this is Mystique's underground bunker home on Krakoa. And we can see that she's got a destiny mask there. It's kind of hovering, maybe kind of like a shrine of sorts. Uh, Mystique looks at it, and she considers what uh, she's about to try doing here. Uh, She seems a bit conflicted, a little bit uh, preoccupied. From here, she meets up with another one of her former lovers, Forge, in order to enlist him to create an insanely destructive weapon for her to use. Now, the way that this conversation is presented is really well done. Um, At this point... We don't know what Mystique's uh, plans are, right? We might assume that this weapon that Mystique is requesting to be made is meant to, I don't know, burn Krakoa to the ground? Hmm? Hmm? Now, the philosophical bits of this dialogue um, as to what a weapon truly is might just be a little bit too clever to sound like actual words of dialogue that would actually come out of any human's mouth. Uh, The point here is well taken, though. Forge talks about weapons and technology that, in and of themselves, they don't have a moral constitution, right? Weapons are 
weapons. Technology is technology. It's all about the end user, or just the plain user, the operator. That's the one who has a uh, sort of a moral constitution, can be good or evil or whatever. Now, Forge, he suggests that he can make a matter-antimatter collider. Now, this could devastate 50 to 100 miles with a just a huge gravitational pull. Now, here, Mystique reveals that her target is not Krakoa, but the Orcus Forge. Now, Forge understands, and he comments on how Orcus is made up of some of the greatest minds in science and technology, but they've got mutant extinction on their minds, so uh, it's not a good thing. He then asks Mystique to take a stab at guessing what the worst weapon he'd ever built was. She doesn't know, so, she, so he tells her. He says that it was the gun that turned the mutants into them. Now, Forge did create a gun that was able to take away mutant powers, and for a while, storms were actually taken away from her. Uh, this is probably around the time of uh, like the life-death era, I believe, uh, the late 100s of uh, Uncanny X-Men. This might be what he's referring to here. It might be literal. Or maybe it's just a broader statement, uh, simply warning of what technology can do in the wrong hands, right? Uh, maybe this act in and of itself is what turns the mutants into the bad guys, right? We don't know. Whatever the case, Forge says he'll do it, and the weapon will be ready in a few weeks. Now, we jump from here to, assumably, a few weeks later. We're in the present. Now, Mystique is at the house of M, getting ready to try and take out Orcus with that matter-antimatter gimmick. She explains that it will, in essence, create a miniature black hole, which will only last long enough to wipe out the Orcus Forge before collapsing in on itself. Magneto questions the severity of this option here. Kind of goes into, you know, uh, you know, killing a fly with a bazooka sort of territory. And Magneto is also kind of a dick here. Um, he and Xavier will both be dicks here. Uh, Mystique compares this mission to removing a cancer. You know, like, you can't just chip bits and pieces off, right? You have to go for the root. You have to take it all out. Otherwise, it's just going to come back. Now, Xavier says... Basically, he couldn't care less what the methods are here, so long as Nimrod is prevented from coming online. So kill people, don't kill people, kill everybody, kill nobody. He doesn't care. Just keep Nimrod from coming online. Mystique glibly responds that she'll, you know, do all the dirty work to keep Xavier's hands clean, and then she mocks his leadership skills. Magneto tells her to watch her tone and warns that she could be replaced by any monster currently residing on Krakoa, which, again, he's a dick. Uh, Mystique confirms with X and M that once this mission is successfully completed, Irene, that is Destiny, will be fast-tracked to the front of the Resurrection queue. Magneto says, of course. Yeah, that's the deal, right? We wouldn't welch on a deal. Xavier follows up with the statement that, uh, at this point, the only thing that'll stop them from bringing Irene back would be Mystique's own failure. Hmm. Now... Let's talk about this scene while it's still fresh in our minds here. I, I, I don't want to wait until the end for this one, because this is, a, this is an interesting scene. Because if we look at this scene from a post-Hox-Pox, Mora's, Krakoa point of view, it's great, right? We've been literally looking forward to this since X-Men number 6, 14 friggin' issues ago. We wanted to see follow-up on this, right? Uh, that whole Mystique issue was wonderful. One of the greatest issues we've gotten since this new direction. But to this point, we've gotten no follow-up on it, right? So in that regard, I really enjoyed this. But if we move from the micro to the macro 
and we look at this scene as an overall piece of X-Men history, that's where the wheels kind of come off a little bit, for me at least. Mystique really ought not be so gullible, right? How she doesn't realize that Xavier and Magneto are basically screwing with her, stringing her along to do their dirty work, that feels wildly out of character, right? I do understand the desperation that uh, Mystique has here. She wants... She wants her wife back. She wants, uh, you know, she wants everything right. And so maybe she's got some blinders on. Maybe she's got a little bit of tunnel vision, seeing this is her only option. But at the same time, out of all the characters who have been brought back, shouldn't she start asking, like, why Destiny is a special case? It kind of feels a little too convenient and uh, written to only to facilitate this story. I mean, let's look at the rest of the Resurrectees here. Not the rest of them, but some of them. The Shadow King, Amal Farouk, Legion, (laughs) any number of highly dangerous mutants who have royally screwed with the X-Men over the past 60 years of publication. You know, some major League threats here. Now, Destiny, by comparison, was basically a benign presence, right? Shouldn't Mystique be questioning this? Shouldn't she be like, "Mm, it's weird. On the other side here, shouldn't Xavier and Magneto be a little bit more wary of Mystique's obedience here? Uh, she's been shown as being very slippery, very smart, quite desperate right now, doesn't have a whole lot to lose. Shouldn't Magneto and Xavier view her as something of a threat here? Or at least a tad bit temperamentally dangerous, instead of just as a plaything that'll just do what they say and not question anything? It seems very bizarre. I don't know. Let's move on. Double page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Mystique, Professor X, Forge, Magneto, Dr. Grega, Omega Sentinel, and Dr. Devo. Or Director Devo, one or the other. We resume, and we're back at the Orcus Forge. Now, Dr. Aaliyah Greger is presenting that red gem to a small crowd of beekeepers and scientists. Omega Sentinel and Devo look on from above. Now, we saw her find this gem way back in X-Men number one. Now, she's basically imprinted her dead husband's life onto this gem. Now, before her on a table lays a Nimrod body. She describes the gem as a crystalline shell, wherein she grew holographic memories of her husband. With it, she could restore his essence back into a body. Hmm. Sound familiar? Maybe a little? Hmm. And so... She implants this gem into Nimrod, everything glows red for a moment, and then, bingo bango, Gregor's husband speaks from the Nimrod body. He feels strange, and uh, understandably so. He sits up, emits another burst of pink energy, and then realizes what's gone down. He knows that he died. What's more, he knows that his wife brought him back. He gently caresses her face as he says this. Does that sound familiar? A spouse doing whatever they can to bring their other half back from the dead? Hmm. Okay. Now the beekeepers are astounded, and they realize that the game just changed. Like, really, everything just changed. Humanity has basically cracked the code on a version of the Resurrection Protocols here. More or less, anyway. Now Erasmus, the husband, he beholds his new Nimrodian body and considers it a wonder. He laments the fact that, since he's no longer flesh and blood, he won't be able to give Alia a child, and she tells him not to worry about that. Now, this oddly touching scene is then interrupted because, you see, Nimrod realizes that one of these beekeepers is actually a mutant. 
And so the jig is up. Mystique is revealed. And so she starts firing at Nimrod to buy herself a moment to engage that black hole bomb, which she does. She drops it and runs. Karima What's-Her-Face demands that the beekeepers get Devo to safety. Nimrod then duplicates himself into two, one of whom can take care of this bomb, another who can pursue and hopefully catch Mystique. Aaliyah sees what's about to happen. She figures that Erasmus is going to sacrifice himself to save the Orcus Forge again. And, well, that's exactly what happens. He duplicates again, absorbs the black hole bomb, and blips deep into space where it explodes without hurting anybody on the forge. The dupe that remains with Aaliyah is... Well, just Nimrod. No longer Erasmus, a cold, unfeeling, inhuman Nimrod with none of Erasmus's behaviors, memories, or uh, morality. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go. Now, this other Nimrod dupe catches up to Mystique. It chokes her out and then blasts her back through the Krakoan portal, and she lands limp and lifeless on the floor of the House of M. We jump back to the forge, where Director Devo asks Karima What's-Her-Face how Gregor is handling this turn of events, you know, losing her husband for a second time. And we learn that uh, Gregor is uh, inconsolable. Devo understands, but he's sure she'll get over it, just as he did when he was in a similar situation. We don't know what that situation is yet, just yet. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. Maybe we did find out and I just forgot. Who knows? He then makes a comment about how they are now feared and hated by mutants, and he has a good chuckle about this turn of events. We jump back to Krakoa, where Mystique emerges from a gold ball. Magneto and Xavier are there to greet her, and Mags asks what happened at the forge. Raven tells him that he ought to know everything from her Cerebro backup. Magneto's all, yeah, I do know. I just want to hear you say it. And so she does. She failed, and Nimrod is online. X and M are all, damn it all, and decide that they're going to have to move on to the next phase of whatever their plan is. But first, of course, we have a fabulous fashion show we need to take time out for. Mystique asks what this means for Irene. You know, what does this mean for my wife? Xavier, blankly and coldly, looks back at her and replies, What about her? Dick. Now, this takes us to the wrap-up, which retells Destiny's prophecy from the end of X-Men number 6, wherein she tells Raven to bring her back, and if she cannot, to burn this place to the ground. Now, as we're getting these bits of prophecy, we see Xavier and Magneto entering Mora's No Place. There, Mora is reading one of Destiny's diaries, which are, of course, those things that were the main motivation for Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men until they completely forgot about them. And that's where we leave it. But we do have a uh, sort of an info page. It's a two-page spread here that says, This Fall, Inferno. So, uh, huh, that clears that up a little bit, perhaps. But that's where we end the issue. Next episode, as mentioned, finally... The Hellfire Gala, so hopefully we can stop talking about it. But for now, let's talk about um, the penultimate issue of X-Men here, which might be, uh, as we talked about with X-Factor, this might be kind of the swan song for this volume, right? Because next issue will, of course, be part of the gala. And I'm assuming that uh, the next issue of X-Men will be more about introducing the next team than uh, really closing anything out from this volume. So this might serve as our... You know, our cutoff point here, uh, with next issue being more of a, a bridge between two volumes. Now, the frustrating thing about this issue is that it was really good, right? Um, which shows us that we could have had a lot of good issues of this volume of X-Men, and we just didn't. 
because we were, I don't know if we were setting the table, if we were world building or what, but uh, everything kind of felt half-baked, except for three, three or so issues of this volume, uh, issues six, seven, and now 20, that actually feel like continuations from Hoxpox. Not that everything had to be, but... I mean, if we're doing 20 issues and only three have to do, as a flagship book, only three have to do with setting up or following up on the premise of the entire line, I don't know, it's a little bit frustrating. Especially in this day and age where comics are expensive and Marvel still has a long way to go in establishing that they're going to fully back the X-Men after shoving them in a corner for the past decade plus. So they have a lot of goodwill to build here, and I don't know if such a slow burn story is the best way to go about that. I mean, sure, you've got me because I'm an idiot who buys everything, you know, but you need to worry about the people who will only come in when it's event time or when it's uh, when there's good buzz, and you got to make sure each and every issue of your flagship book is something that a potential newcomer or a potential lapsed fan will get something out of. And I feel like this is kind of a double-edged sword here because as out of these 20 issues, I, like I just said, three of them are relevant. But at the same time, those three might be the most difficult for a new reader to get into. So it's, it's very much a double-edged sword. And uh, honestly, I don't have any better ideas. So I should probably just stop talking. Now let's talk about the issue. We have comparisons introduced to us here, right? Nimrod and the Resurrection Protocols. This I didn't see coming. Um, maybe I should have, but I didn't see this coming, where Gregor has figured out a way to put consciousness uh, of her lost loved one into the Nimrod. I mean, the title of this issue is Lost Loves, right? And that is on multiple levels. Now, is this just another piece of the post-humanity puzzle? Could very well be. Can we see the uh, Krakoan Resurrection Protocols as something of a precursor to this? Possibly. So this might be another instance where the X-Men are the architects of their own demise, in a way. And uh, that's not the only thing in this issue that, uh, that relates to that, and we'll get to that in just a bit. Another really cool comparison we get here is between Dr. Gregor and Mystique herself. They're both uh, desperate to bring back their lost love, and it would seem that they're both doomed to have to go on without them. I think this is a really cool sort of a zig instead of a zag here. Um... The way Nimrod is brought online initially, I I think, I mean, Nimrod has been presented as uh, one of, if not the, big bad of this entire era. And so when we see him come back, and he has a human personality, and is gently caressing the face of his lost love, um, it's a subversion of what we might have expected, you know? We expect Nimrod to sit up from the table and just say, mutant, exterminate, and that's about it. Right? Here he has compassion. Here he has human feelings. Which brings us to the next thing, wherein the mutants are architects of their own uh, destruction. We killed that one, right? Uh, the, the Erasmus Nimrod is dead. And so the only Nimrod left is one without any humanity, without any sort of moral compass, one that is just about eradicating mutants. So, had Mystique not intervened here, had the mutants not gone back to the Orcus Forge to try and take it out, we could have a kindler, gentler Nimrod going forward. 
we can have an Erasmus Nimrod who has been shown time and again throughout this run as being someone who is, at, at their core, uh, I, I don't know if we want to say a good or bad person because we don't know him quite that well, but we know that he has, uh, he has a constitution. And we know that he is, uh, he is giving of self. He's altruistic. He will do what he has to do to save those around him. Those are not, you know, those are not bad qualities. And that could have been the Nimrod we had going forward, where this is a Nimrod that could have been potentially reasoned with, but he's gone. He was sucked into the black hole. He, he zipped out into space and uh, was engulfed in the matter-antimatter deal, and all that remains is Nimrod. So uh, this is just another instance of the self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, the mutants are always destined to lose. The thing that Mora is trying to uh, circumvent, but keeps, no matter how far they pull away, they wind up pulling into it. It's uh, it's interesting. I really, really dig this. Uh, we also get a little bit of clarity on what Inferno is. Um, all I knew was that it was a uh, teaser. I've stayed away from as many uh, websites as possible. I don't want to know what this is going to be about. Of course, we've talked about things it could be about. I think we all assumed it was going to be about Mystique burning the place down, but uh, there was a question of whether or not the Inferno of old was going to be revisited in some sort of way, uh, form or fashion, with, uh, you know, kidnapped children, stuff like that. But here, with the, uh, the juxtaposition of the scenes, I think we can probably assume that this is a uh, definitely going to be a Mystique and Destiny-centric sort of story here. And I tell you what, it was cool seeing uh, Mora reading Destiny's Diaries here. The Destiny's Diaries gimmick that was introduced um, around the time of Extreme X-Men, or right before Extreme X-Men, I believe we talked about it during one of our Merry X-Lap specials, uh, the 100-page monster uh, that Chris Claremont left the X-Men books on, or left the flagship titles on before he went to launch Extreme, where the team of like Storm and Rogue and Gambit and... Beast and Psylocke, a bunch of people. <laughs> they all went and formed their own team in order to track down the rest of Destiny's Diaries, which I thought was a really cool sort of uh, premise. And then they forgot about it. They just didn't really do much on it. I thought that was going to be a really fun thing. Though, looking back on it now, um, I don't know how you play that out. You know, had Extreme X-Men been all about Destiny's Diaries, what's your endgame? Right? What is the end game there? Is it you find out everything that's going to happen and you, you, you know, you become, you know, Biff Tannen in Back to the Future 2? I mean, what is it? Maybe it's just something that's better, like, in the back of our minds as a, as an, as a possibility or an opportunity than something that actually winds up playing out on the page. So, but I think that's probably all I have to say about this issue. Um, Xavier and Magneto, absolute jerks during this issue. To the point where I know we've talked about how some of these characters are acting out of character. This was even a step further than that to me. It felt very, very bizarre. Um, they're very unlikable. It's it's weird. Uh, the art here, uh, Francesco Mobili, um, it, while feeling kind of like a fill-in because we didn't know who the artist was going to be on this, turned in some really spectacular work here. Uh, no complaints about the art. The art was very, very good. I went in expecting... You know, rushed fill-in work uh, But, no, very, very good stuff So yeah, I think This is, gets a rare um, Thumbs up and endorsement For the flagship book from me For, you know, whatever that's worth Which is uh, very little 
But yeah, I think that's all I got to say about this issue. And uh, before we head out, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got another Damien double shot from Off the Beaten Path. The first book he discusses is Modoc. Head cases, head games, head whatever the hell it was. Uh, number three. He says, Hi, Chris. I felt a pang of guilt when you said you had no letters in this episode. I'm slowly but surely catching up, currently only about 30 episodes behind. No, no, no. Don't feel bad. It, uh, it happens sometimes. It, it's weird how... Uh, we get a lot of mail on the show, but like on days where we don't, it's like I don't get any from anybody. <laughs> like usually, usually it'll be like, oh well, I got one from somebody, then maybe didn't get one from somebody the next day, but got one from somebody else. But then there are those days where just like none come in. It's very, very bizarre. And I mean, since it does happen so rarely, it's probably not something I should ever kind of complain about. So I apologize if I came across as complaining about that during this episode. Uh, Damien continues. It's a shame that I didn't enjoy this issue as much as you did. It ultimately comes down to my fandom for the Dark Rain spinoff, Modoc Rain Delay by Ryan Dunlavy, which I bought off the shelf back in 2009. I love that book as it skewers the then-current Marvel Universe and does so in such a delightful manner. It's probably a little bit LOL random for you, because it is the source of the Modoc Demands Pancakes panel, but I love it. That special features Modoc's parents and therefore contradicts this issue of Head Games. I personally feel that continuity should be maintained with obscure comedy one-shots. And yeah, I didn't even know that was a thing. I do remember the Modoc Demands Pancakes thing, and yeah, I'm sure I rolled my eyes at it when I saw it. But yeah, I didn't know that uh, that that series or that one-shot had uh, established any sort of backstory for Modoc that was um, contradicted here. And I agree with you. As a uh, as an addict to lore and continuity, I, I don't want to see things contradicted. I, I want to see, even in the most obscure things here, I, I talk about, like, uh, you know, the AIM toothpaste PSAs. I want those things in continuity. I want <laughs> I don't want anything in those sort of books. The Halloween specials, the, uh, the Spider-Man uh, newspaper strip. I want everything on the same continuity. So I, I can totally, uh, totally sympathize <laughs> with uh, you perhaps not enjoying this one quite as much since it does contradict what came before. Damien continues. I did enjoy the cutout plot twists and the skid stuff. This weirdly segues into your discussion of our first X-Book. My first U.S. one was X-Factor number 9, which features skids quite prominently, and I enjoyed it so much I went back the following day and bought classic X-Men number 1. Of course, I've been reading Marvel UK for several years before I discovered U.S. comics, and I think my first issue was Thor and the X-Men number 31, which was cover dated November 16, 1983, making me 9 years old at the time. It features a reprint of X-Men number 27 by Roy Thomas and Warner Roth, and features The Mimic. Thor and the X-Men was my first superhero book, and I got it solely for the X-Men. In fact, I don't think I even read the Thor strip. Oh, that's awesome. I love hearing these kind of stories. I love finding out about our the roots and the, the origins of our fandom and just like the weird things that we pick up and the reasons why we pick them up. Um, I, I think I've talked about this before. The first comic that I bought with my own money was either issue 8 or 9 of the Vision and the Scarlet Witch miniseries. And it had, like, Toad on the cover with, like, a holographic... He was, like, in a chair with, like, a holographic body around him or something, like, with a hand reaching out. Don't know why I bought that issue, but I did, and I'll, I'll never forget it. And um, also, good on you for not reading Thor. Thor is boring. <laughs> Thor is so dull to me. I remember... Um, you know, of course, when you talk about Thor, it's like, oh, you gotta read the Simonson stuff. You gotta read the Walt, read the Walt Simonson stuff. So I bought one of the, uh, 
It's not an omnibus. It was before the omnibuses were a thing, but a uh, a big collection of the Walt Simonson Thor. And I tried it so many times because you guys know me. I always second guess my own um, tastes and my own opinions. I always think I'm wrong. When I don't like something, I'm sure that it's probably one of the best things ever. And when I do like something, I'm like, eh, nobody else is going to dig this. So when I'm reading uh, these Thor issues and I'm like, I just can't get into this. My immediate thought is like, I must be, you know, I must be broken. You know, everybody else loves this and I don't. I must be just a broken unit here. So I just kept trying and trying and trying and it felt like such a chore. And I think I ultimately made it like three or four issues into it. And it was just like, I can't continue. <laughs> I just can't continue. Uh, Damien wraps up with, I suppose that makes that, I, that means that I'm edging on 38 years of loving the X-Men. And it's a... Uh, Time is a son of a bitch, isn't it? <laughs> Time goes way too fast here. It's so, it's so crazy to think about um, how you know, like you go back to 1983. The X Men were 20 years old at that point, which probably felt like forever, right? When I started, the X Men were coming on. The, uh, we're just a couple years shy of their 30th anniversary, and I remember thinking, like, wow, 30 years. This this book's been around forever. And I mean, that was 30 years ago now, just about. It's insane to consider just how much time goes by and how things change and how, th- how some things stay the same, like, like these comics that are... We get a monthly stamp on these comics, then they follow us through our lives, and it's, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Uh, next, Damien's talking about Runaways number 34. He says, This is definitely a good comic, but a very difficult one to comment on. I really like Wolverine written like this. It really reminds me of the Wolverine First Class series by Fred Van Lenty, which featured Wolverine training training Kitty. Logan makes a very good exasperated uncle. I do feel like I'm missing lots of important details because I've never previously read a runaway story. It feels like it contains lots for a regular reader, and the art is delightful too. And you're right, this is a very fun book. I even went and bought and read the issue, uh, Runaways, Runaways number 36, I guess it would be, after the, uh, after the Wolverine guest appearance was gone. I, I actually picked up the next issue and read it. Thought it was okay. Um, didn't love it. Uh, that was the issue that in the solicits, like, wouldn't give us any information because it proclaimed itself as being the greatest Marvel comic of the year. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, perhaps if you were following Runaways, you know, I can't even say that. If you were following, Runa- following Runaways religiously, it still wouldn't be the best comic of the year. Uh, there's a neat little reveal in it, which went over my head. You know, I didn't get the importance of it. Uh, I, I assume if you were reading Runaways uh, religiously, you would have uh, gotten a little bit more out of that reveal. But uh, I only bring it up to say that I, yes, I stuck with this, this book. I don't know if I'm going to stick with it forever, but... Uh, I was interested enough to pick up the next issue and just see where it was headed. Uh, these characters are fun. The art's great. The uh, the writing is is really, really good as well. It's a fun story. You're probably not missing much if you wait for Marvel Unlimited to put it up. You know, it's not. I don't think it's something you need to read immediately, especially with you know how big all of our uh, comics backlogs are at this point. But uh, when it does pop up on Unlimited, I I'd recommend checking it out. At least give it a little flip through. It's uh, it's not bad stuff. Now you mention. The First Class series is Wolverine First Class here, which reminds me of a little bit of a peek behind the curtain here, because uh, <laughs> it's caused me quite a bit of turmoil, these uh, these First Class series is. 
If you're following along with the channel, you'll know that in our off time from doing the current year X-Men stuff, I'm doing a show called Essential X-Lapsed, where I'm taking a look at everything from the Silver Age, starting with X-Men number one, working our way forward here. We're going to have non-X-Books getting involved when the X-Men are crossing over into things. we got a couple of crossovers actually coming up the next time we, uh, we take that stint, but uh, I considered trying to do it, like, chronologically. So importing the first-class stories into, like, in-between pages or in-between issues of the original run here. So, like, we'd have, you know, X-Men number one, two, and three, and then X-Men first-class number one and two, or however however it worked out. And it just made my head spin. <laughs> so I uh, ultimately decided against it. I, I th- still think it's a cool idea to do something like that, just have a... Uh, like an absolute chronological uh, compilation of of the X-Men, their, their, their life story in a sense here. So I might revisit that, and I might take a page out of Marvel's own numbering scheme to do so. So, like if I find out that, say, X-Men, Unli- X-Men Unlimited, no, X-Men First Class number one takes place between issues three and four of X-Men, I'll, you know, I'll call it like Essential X-Lapsed, Number 3.1, you know, and then we'll just stick it in there and uh, fill in all the blanks here, which it's something I also considered doing for uh, the John Byrne X-Men Hidden Year series if and when we get past, you know, the original 66. Not exactly sure how that'll go, if it'll go at all, um, or if we'll jump from issue 66 straight into maybe some of the Beast Amazing Adventure stories where he gets fuzzy, maybe some of the... uh, some of the other crossovers, uh, the introduction of Wolverine, perhaps, in, in Hulk, uh, then go into giant size, or if or if we'll work it where we do some uh, the X-Men Hidden Years series with these other appearances sporadically spread throughout and then into giant size. I mean, we got plenty of time before we get there. I mean, we're only up to issue or episode 7 at this point, so we got time. <laughs> we certainly have time, so... If anybody out there is thinking into the future, let me know your thoughts on that sort of thing. If this is uh, if this is something you'd like to see me do, the X-Men The Hidden Years thing, and also trying to implement some of the first-class stuff into where it would fit in continuity. But that will do it for the mailbag. Thank you so much, Damien, for writing in to talk about those off-the-beaten-path issues. As I said before, it means a lot when folks will read things that uh, they don't normally read in order to keep up with the show. That... Uh, I can't put into words what that means to me, so thank you so much. Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways, and I would hope you, you'd try to. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can go to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com for blog posts and show notes. You could join the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie comics listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it every day, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, tell a friend or two, all that happy stuff. It would really, really help me out. But that's going to do it for today. I want to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day-to-day, and uh, till next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.